gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And we have one episode before Thanksgiving break, and I'll probably just let everybody know what our schedule through the end of the year is. We are taking a week off for Thanksgiving and uh, focus on our families and time with our families. And then we will take two weeks off in the end of the year for Christmas and New Year's. And then we'll be back in in January for, for the new year. And I did want to mention also, if you have any episode suggestion request you can always email them to us at theologygals at gmail.com or put them in the facebook group if you're in there or reach out to one of us as we we always take episode request topic requests so if you'd like to support us you, you can support us monthly even a few dollars a month helps on patreon and that's linked on our website and also the episode notes you can also give a one-time donation through PayPal. And then just a reminder with Christmas coming that we do have Theology Gals merch and there is a discount code Theology, all capital letters, 20. So 20% off through the end of November. You can let your husbands know if you've been wanting to have a Theology Gals shirt or mug. And then also we have the Theology Gals booklets, which would also be great for Christmas. A sermon notes notebooks would be a great stocking stuffer and we have those for adults and the adult one would be great for teenagers and we also have them two different ones for children children that can't quite read well themselves yet and then for a little bit older elementary age kids that have learned to read and also the catechism and scripture memory books and then bible reading notebooks also that would be great for the first of the year because they have a yearly Bible reading plan in them. So all of that is on our website and also linked on the episode notes. 
we hadn't haven't done a question and answer episode in a while, and so we thought this would be a good time to do one, especially as we kind of just finished up kind of the fall book tour. Lots of great new books that came out, and a lot of them don't necessarily have to do with the episodes, but are still questions that we got a lot of them through the Facebook group. So we have fun doing the question answer episodes, and uh, our listeners seem to enjoy them. So also, if you ever have a question from one of our episodes, or even just in general, you can email that to us also. So we're just going to go through our questions. Now, the first one is one that it's really probably in the top five most common questions we get. And so we're going to address it and probably not going to make anyone happy with, you know, I'm going to let Rachel address it. (laughs) Just throw me under the bus there, Colleen. Just throw me under the bus. Could you give some perspective on whether or not the Enneagram is a good tool for Christians to use? Is it bad? Is it good? Neutral? So, what do you think, Rachel? And Rachel and I are actually in agreement on this. We've talked about it. You know, it's funny because, you know, looking through this list of questions uh, when we were discussing ahead of time, I was like, yeah, let's paint more targets on our backs because we don't have enough of them. (laughs) That's true. Um. You know, I'm to start off with. I am a, a a big fan of like the the Myers Briggs personality test kind of stuff and the the insights that it might give for um, for understanding people, understanding how you work and, and how you think. So you know, I'm not opposed to personality types uh, and the uses that they can be for you know, like I said, insight. Um, I have not done a lot. With the Enneagram, it's just one that I haven't spent a lot of time with. And I know there's a lot of out- information out there about why people think it's great, why people think that it's um, it's awful, why people think it's helpful, and why people think that it's not something Christians should use. So the biggest thing I want to say here, or the, the strongest thing I want to say here is, Colleen and I believe that this is a matter of Christian liberty. Uh, this is something that... Um, a Christian, each individual Christian is going to have to look into and decide whether they think it's um, useful or appropriate, helpful, um, or inappropriate and unhelpful. Um, and it's something that good Christians may disagree on uh, as to whether or not they want to use it. Uh, most things uh, can be used for inappropriate reasons. Most things can be used most secular things can be used in ways uh, that are helpful for Christians. So, um, I guess our advice is use it if you feel like it's helpful. If you are strongly opposed to it, uh, don't do it. Yeah, and I think sometimes things like this, you see some very extreme views one way or the other. I know that there are books out there that kind of Christianize the Enneagram and, you know, that sort of thing I am uncomfortable with. We start making everything a Christian version of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that a lot of people point to the history and that there can be new age connections or different things like that. And obviously, you know, don't use it in ways that would be contrary to the Christian faith. Right. So the next the next question has to do with the worship of family over the gospel. And I think even, I would say, not even nec- not always over the gospel, but just the worship of family in general. Um, 
She says that the thoughts and concepts that there is nothing that a family member could do that would make you walk away from them because it isn't loving. You have to accept your family sinning against you because they are family. And one of the things I think of with this, because I know there's been discussions in reform circles, is the the family integrated church movement Mm -hmm. where the family almost becomes its own mini church, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty common. And, you know, I agree. I, I, when I first read this question about the worship of family over the gospel, I I took it a couple different ways. One way, like the author of the question intended, but also another way of, of, um, like you said, with the family integrated church and the prioritization of the family uh, over church or over gospel, uh, so that you know, again, it's that idolization of marriage and family, and you know, this is what what it becomes the gospel to people instead of the actual gospel, and then the recognizing the blessing that family is for us as believers. Um, I would certainly disagree with the idea that uh, you have to accept your family sinning against you because they're family. Um, you know, you see even in in Scripture in the New Testament that uh, accepting the gospel may divide a family against itself, and we have to you know prioritize our faith and our our love for for Christ over any other relationship that we have. Uh, And we certainly shouldn't have to um, submit to uh, abusive, sinful treatment just because someone is related to us. I think sometimes people don't realize that we we can have boundaries. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's actually wise to have boundaries. You can even look in Proverbs and there's even things that kind of point to wise, wise boundaries. And I'll be the first to say that, you know, this is one area that I struggle with, um, about setting up boundaries, because especially with people who I'm close to, because it's hard to, to tell people no, or to say, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that, um, in certain relationships, because you don't want to hurt feelings. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> it's not something I'm good at. Yeah. Oh, it's hard. I think it's especially hard when it is family mm-hmm. to to have those boundaries. One thing um, I think I'll mention, since I mentioned the family integrated church, I know that um, sometimes people, we've had conversations in the group and somebody new to a Presbyterian church will describe it as a family integrated church because they have the kids in the service and that's not what makes something a family integrated church. Uh, you can even find online they had kind of like um, almost like their own confession mm-hmm. marks of what makes a family integrated church and things that you'll see there is you know the father takes the communion and feeds it to his family and things like that and those are not things you should find in reformed and presbyterian churches Mm-mm. yeah i mean you know we've talked before about you know things like that with with in our parenting episodes and parenting from the pews and you know, if you have your kids with you in church, that's great. If you want to have them in the nursery, it's also fine. You know, and most of the Reformed churches take a pretty um, either-way approach with that about, you know, you do what, what fits your family best. 
Yeah, and every Reformed church I've been in has had a nursery for zero to three for those that want to um, put their younger kids in it. Um, you know, I think this, the next part of her question, which I think is something that really fits into some of our conversations about patriarchy, um, things that Rachel talks about in her book, um, although this might be a little different than I originally thought, but she talked in in relation to the family, um, she speaks of a view of always being under the authority of the parent, even while married, because older believers have more wisdom. I'm not sure I've run into that so much. I have run into the women are under the authority of her father until she gets married um, and it transfers to her husband. But are you familiar with that, being always under? No, I, I'm not run across that much. Um, although, possibly in practice more than in, like, what's, like, laid out or what's expectations. Um, I'm sure I've, we're all familiar or seen it where uh, even, like, especially young married couples are expected to, um, I guess, give preference or deference to the what their parents want to do. And you know, it's a, a fine line between, you know, wanting to honor your parents as an adult um, and, you know, respect them. And you certainly can, if you have a, especially if you have a good relationship with your parents, you certainly may go to them for advice or um, ask them for insights or wisdom because they've lived longer and you, you, you respect their opinions. But, um, you know, it's not the same thing as, you know, they have authority to tell you what to do. It, once you are an adult, once you have left uh, your parents' household and you are living on your own, then you really don't have, um, there really isn't, biblically, there isn't a, a paradigm for adult children uh, obeying everything their parents tell them to do in the way that, like 10 and 11 year old children would have to do. There's so many different things that I think are commonly taught mm. that sometimes like a woman is under her father's authority until she gets married. So like my, my friend who's 50 years old and single is, you know, still under her father's authority. And this is not something we find in scripture. So yeah, not at all. We had a question about the different views on communion and there there's a lot I'll I'll try to find some things to link in the episode notes because there's some some different different things. So let's let's start with uh I kind of can think of four mm-hmm. um four primary views. Uh or five I guess. So transubstantiation. Mm-hmm. What's transubstantiation that's something that you're going to find with the Catholics. Yeah, that view is the view that um, the elements, the the bread and wine, or the the wafer and the wine, actually become the body and blood of Christ. So they are transformed into Christ's body and blood uh, during the Mass. And you know, this is with all of these. It, 
these views are going to sound somewhat stereotypical because there are so many variations. So we're making some generalizations here about the views because that people hold it variations on each of these. If you get down, like you tell someone who's a Catholic, well, you believe this, well, they may not. So just, this is, again, generalizations on it. Um, but these beliefs about the body and the blood for Catholics have led to things, um, concerns about, you know, whether or not you should bite into the wafer or the, the bread because would it bleed because it's Christ's blood body. Um, whether or not Catholics truly believe that, you know, that there at least been those discussions. Um, there are also concerns because once it becomes the body and the blood in the Mass, then uh, the elements have been uh, consecrated and uh, you know the wine has to be finished and poured out. You don't want crumbs or drops to, to hit the floor. So there's a, a different treatment of the elements through the Mass. And then we have consubstantiation, and and I will tell you, we had a Lutheran on early, early in this podcast, and they will say this isn't our view, and you know, we'll we'll just just describe the view, and then maybe what what Luther what their confession says. So consubstantiation, just in brief, uh, it holds that during the sacraments, the substance of the body and blood of Christ are present alongside the substance of the bread and wine. Uh, so um, it's it's not consecrated in the way that it is. Um, in the Catholic Church, but kind of becomes becomes that. I I know in my reading I read that some Anglicans hold this, but mm. I'm not a an expert. Um, I know I I do have a link from that LCMS. So I usually usually I I find the LCMS website has a a pretty good description of what most Lutherans believe, um, obviously difference in denominations on some other things, but on a question and answer, I'll, I'll read what they say about their view. We receive in, with, and under the bread and wine the true body and blood of Christ shed on the cross. And one of the things I think I said on last week's episode is that you'll find that Lutherans on certain things um, take a literal view. So, when it says baptism now saves us, they hold to a baptismal regeneration. When it says this is my body, this is my blood, um, they they believe that that is true, but they would explain it different than the Catholics. Um, from the formula of Concord, the incomprehensible spiritual mode of presence according to which he neither occupies nor yields space, but passes through everything created as he wills. He employed this mode of presence when he left the closed grave and came through the closed doors in the bread and wine in the supper. So we could do whole episodes on just each person's view. So this is mm -hmm. a summary. I'm going to put some links. Um, and then we have the reformed reform view. I have a, a link that I will um, put in the episode notes that that's um, from the Westminster Seminary California website, just because I thought it was a good summary that I've, I've used before. Um, and one of the things you'll hear spoken about in, when, in Reformed Theology is, um, and it's true here, this article says, Lord's Supper is grounded in an important distinction between the sign and the seal, which bread and wine, 
the thing that signifies, so it signifies forgiveness through the blood, uh, the blood of the covenant, and a sacramental union between the two. So, so you'll you'll hear discussion. So it's it signifies you know what Christ has done for us. But when we we think about that in in when we talk about baptism, where we don't think that the water in baptism saves us, but it signifies it, we have a sign and seal of of what Christ has done. Um, so this is it's not a physic. We don't have a view like the Catholic or the Lutheran that um, it is literally the body and blood, but there is a spiritual presence. Different than um, like the memorial view, which Rachel will talk about in a minute, we do believe that it is a sacrament, that God is at work um, through the sacraments. Through the work of the Spirit in particular. The best place to go for understanding the Reformed position is the Confession and Catechism. The memorial view, um, which is most common in, in Baptist and non-denominational type uh, church backgrounds, is a view that, uh, you know, the Christ said, do this in remembrance of me, right? And so that's what you're doing when you when you do the Lord's Supper, is that you are memory, re, sorry, memory, you are remembering his sacrifice, you're remembering his death and resurrection. And so then the bread and wine or uh, bread and grape juice, which is very common with Baptists as well, um, are symbols of Christ's body and blood, but that's that's really all that it is. It's a symbol. Um, I mean, again, this is a generalization. If you talk to the Baptists, they would certainly not, uh, they're not likely to disagree that, you know, Christ is present in our wor- present in our worship and in the taking of the Lord's Supper and that the Holy Spirit is at work. But the when you get down to the points of how it works and what's going on, there would be disagreement. Yeah, and Baptists don't call them sacraments, they mm-hmm. call them ordinances, mm-hmm. so that would be a difference. Now, one thing that's that I have found interesting in recent years is finding out that there's differences between confessional Reformed Baptists, mm. where some of them will say, no, I believe it's a sacrament, mm-hmm. and some will say, no, I think it's an ordinance. Next question is, I would like to understand how we are to view covenant children. I'm trying to understand the difference. Um, Are we to assume that God will save them, or do we presume that he has saved them unless they flat out reject Christ when they're older? And that that is, is, I'll let Rachel talk about it, but that, that is one view, presumptive regeneration, that there are some people in reform circles that I presume they're saved unless they prove otherwise, which... There are a lot of Reformed people who take issue with that view, too. So, how do we view our covenant children? You know, it is a really good question. And I wrote an article a couple years ago for uh, the PCA Encourage website for for moms, for women. And it was entitled, Raising Covenant Children Without Presumption or Skepticism. Right. And so, the idea, my husband and I both grew up in um, Credo Baptist, type backgrounds, right, where you walk the aisle and you make a profession of faith and then you're baptized at a certain age, or at whatever age you are, but as a professing believer, right? So we knew, like, how to do that. Um, But since we were raising our children 
in Presbyterian Church, and we had baptized them as infants and believed that was the right thing to do. It was less clear to us how you navigate what to do now with your kids. Um, And the two things that we ran across a lot were, um, first off, we would pray over our children at at their baptism that they would never know a day without the Lord, right? That is our hope for our children. But at the same time, there seemed to be, um, in some circles, kind of a skepticism and wanting to know if if your children had um, had a conversion experience. And it, it, it was... It's trying to balance all these these differences that I was working through in this article about how do we look at our children without treating that without doubting their uh, confession even if they're very young, but also not presuming that well God's obviously going to save them because they're my children and they're covenant children and they've been baptized, um, and so the approach that I um, have taken uh, that we're taking with our kids is that um, we don't know when the Lord will work in the lives of our children. We hope that He will. We pray that He will. And then we raise our children um, to know the Lord, to love the Lord, to confess their sins, and we encourage them to, um, to confess their faith, to uh, take ownership that this is their faith that they have to have with the Lord, not based on my relationship, but their own. And so, so we help them, help our children understand that they have a need for salvation. And we pray for them and with them. And we ask them questions about what they believe. As, and as they get older, that they should be able to say more about what they believe and why. And hopefully we will see evidence of their faith, of their growth, of the work of the Spirit. And we should, you know, look for those things and then point point them out to them, right? So when our children are like, "Well, I don't know, am I saved?" And we can talk to them about, "Well, what do you see? Do you see, you know, the Spirit working in you?" And encourage them then, when they, when we do see work for the Spirit and we do see good evidence that they are making a profession of faith that is, um, you know, credible and. Um, age appropriate, that when at the right point, when they're ready to take the responsibilities of being a communing member in the church, they, they then go before the elders, and then it's up to your elders to talk with them and verify what, what they see in their lives as well. So it's not, you know, just assuming that they're saved, and it's also not discounting those very um, sweet, childlike professions of faith that we see from our little ones. Like we say, oh, well, you're just... I would hate to someone to tell the child, oh, well, you're just mimicking what your parents say. You know, they they may truly be believers, and we don't know yet about whether what's going to happen in their lives. Um, so I guess that's, do you have something that you would add to that? I agree with everything, everything that Rachel said. Um, I would also say to have a good understanding of how we view our covenant children, um, I would highly recommend our Scott Clark's Series, I will be a God to you and your children, because I think having a correct understanding of baptism and what that means is vital to to understanding how we view our covenant children. Mm. And I'm also going to link the article that Rachel mentioned in the episode notes. 
So this is another one. This comes up in our group all the time to the point that we only have one post where you're allowed to talk about it. You have to go find that post. Um, And that is Christmas and Easter. In the Reformed denominations, some churches celebrate them, others don't. Yet, most of those families still celebrate privately. Um, So, there is a lot of Reformed churches that they don't celebrate it as part of worship because of the regulative principle of worship. Um, And then you have, I think think most Reformed people I know celebrate Christmas as a family. You know, have a tree and gifts and, um, and I think this is really a liberty thing like yeah. Rachel was talking about earlier. I've never met anyone who was reformed who refused to, you know, recognize Christmas um, or even Easter with their families at some, in some way, right? Um, what that looks like may vary. Uh, as far as churches, I've been in uh, Reformed churches that, uh, you know, have you know, the Advent wreath and have a Christmas service, Christmas Eve services, have um, you know, special Easter services, um, and I've been in others where, you know, we, we sing some Christmas hymns, we sing Easter hymns, but, you know, that's really the only mention of it as far as the, the church observation of it is and various things between the two um i do think that it is a matter of of christian liberty as far as the churches celebrating and whether or not they do a lot of that goes back to um a response by the reformers against the excesses of um the the church celebrations and the masses of the Catholic Church pre-Reformation, and uh, even you know some of the more elaborate celebrations that happened around uh, culturally around the churches that as they were being de- um, being formed, and not wanting to be part of what they saw as as ungodly or um, uh, profane treatments of of things that should be much more special and much more um, uh, I guess uh, holy would be a good word so that our worship should be holy and and reverent and so you know you have these these views about what was going on and what they didn't want to be part of and uh, so there's there are some that have taken more an approach of we don't do any of that and here's why and I respect each of those views about how you celebrate and why. Um, I think, though, that this, like Colleen said, this is an area of Christian liberty, and it's a place where we should be gracious with each other, especially for other believers who hold a different view. Um, the chapter in Romans, uh, Romans 14, that talks about um, opinions and matters of conscience and uh, the freedom that we have in Christ and Christian liberty and in making these decisions and you know, it talks about, you know, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike, right? If you observe the day, observe for the Lord. If you don't, you're also observing that for the Lord. And I think we should just be very gracious with each other. I've recently um, met some people, I think even in our group, um, from Covenanters mm-hmm. generally, um, the RPCNA, um, that some of them... Um, 
are opposed to even private celebrations. Mm-hmm. Um, the RPCNA church that I was in, they every family in there had private celebrations. Um, you know, they didn't celebrate as part of of corporate worship, but there was. And everyone was home celebrating. And I know G.I. Williamson, uh, who holds a view um, against celebrating, he has an article, I'll link in the episode notes, but he says in that article that he does not take issue with people who choose to celebrate it mm-hmm. with their families and maybe read Luke 2 and sing some Christmas hymns and stuff. I've seen a lot of things come out of social media and a lot of influences. And so sometimes there's people with certain views that are very vocal because mm-hmm. there are people that think it's an absolute sin to, you know, have a Christmas tree and exchange gifts and things like that. So there there are people, but it's a really tiny, tiny group. But when I'm going to say something in regards to this because I've seen it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is to be careful with your... Uh, social media interactions you should never be convinced of something from a Facebook post you might know hey I want to go study that on my own and stuff I've even said even to the girls in our group even though I I would like you to believe in pedo baptism I'm going to be really uncomfortable with you being convinced of it in a Facebook post (laughs) Um, it's it's kind of a reminder of why Rachel and I are here we're not here to convince you of everything we believe we're here to encourage you to be studying the Word of God. Absolutely. The reason I said all that is because very recently I have had people come, you know, they were told in a Facebook post, you're in sin for having a Christmas tree and (laughs) kind of beside themselves about it and not sure what to do. So, anyways. So, we've talked about narcissism and we are going to be talking in the future more about abuse because I think it's an important topic. Somebody asks, how do you recover from being verbally abused by a narcissist? Like flashbacks, especially when the narcissist was a ministry leader. And if you didn't hear our episode with Diane Langford, that one is a good one on that subject. You know, Colleen and I have talked about this, that we think it's important that if you have been in or, or wondering if you are in a relationship with a narcissist or you're dealing with a narcissist either at work or in church, that um, you familiarize yourself with the topic that we've, in that episode, we give several books that we think are helpful uh, for understanding what's going on. And, and then really, to recover, I think it's important that you seek counsel. And you know, I would recommend, you know, in addition to you know, the spiritual counsel that you can get from, from your pastor or from your, your church, that you seek um, professional help from uh, counseling with someone who is uh, trained to deal with uh, trauma recovery. And because there are so many layers to dealing with uh, recovery from narcissism and trauma. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. And um, the books that, uh, I can tell you that the books we read, that Rachel and I read for the narcissism episode were very good and very helpful um, in understanding these things. Even even if you have some sort of relationship in your life where you're thinking, hmm, I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, um, you, re- you can read that book and be like, wow, that's describing my situation. 
So we had done an episode on natural theology a few months ago. And the question is, I would love to hear more on natural theology, especially as it relates to sola scriptura, sufficiency of scripture. What is the purpose of natural theology for the Christian? Um, How should we interpret passages that seem to point to natural theology as a means of knowing how we ought to live? And one thing I've seen since we did that episode, there's kind of some maybe more extreme views out there where Mm -hmm. something it's not useful whatsoever and then some that, which I think we talked about in the episode, that kind of take it too far. Well, um, natural theology as a as a study or as a, a field of study, it has to do with looking at the world around us and seeing what we can deduce about God and about who we are and about what we should do from nature. Um, and I think that it can be useful uh, and in the right um, in the right view, in the right uh, proportions, to, to look at, at the world around us, to to consider what we can know about God and and how we can understand Him um, from nature. Um, you know, Scripture talks about um, how His glory and His um, power, His might, His creation bears these these signs of who and what he is and how he has done these things. Uh, so, you know, when you study the stars and you consider that they are his handiwork, right? When you look at uh, an animal and study um, the the way the animal is, is suited for its environment, we can consider what that mean, what that says about God as a creator. Um, you know, these are are useful tools for us as believers. They can be especially useful when we're talking with non-believers because it gives us a point, a common point of reference that they know the stars, they know the animals, they know things that God has created, and we can we can use that as a way to to, to talk to them about things that they would not necessarily have an understanding of from from not having knowing Scripture. But um, natural theology is limited uh, in that. You know, and, and Scripture says this: that our minds are uh, are fallen. Our our reasoning is faulty because of the of the fall and because of sin. And so, a person apart from the work of the Spirit in them is not able to reason themselves to God um, based on what they see around them. Um, without the special revelation of Scripture uh, and the work of the Spirit, we wouldn't know. You know what it is, uh, who Christ is, and how how we are to be saved. Uh, we wouldn't know what God demands of us as far as um, I'm using demands in, the, in a, not in the sense of God has this list and a checklist, but what it means to serve God, what it means to honor Him, and how we have sinned against Him. Uh, we wouldn't know these things without Scripture. Um, so the danger comes in my in my understanding and my opinion that the danger comes from taking uh, natural theology and taking nature and what we can view around us and de- reading scripture, special revelation through the lens of nature. And so then you interpret, and we see this especially with interpretations of uh, what it means to be masculine or feminine or. Um, in some other aspects, but that that one in particular, then they take the passages of Scripture and they under, read them through, well, this is how I understand 
what I see in nature, and this is then how I'm going to read the scriptures. And I think that's getting it backwards. I think it's important for us to start with scripture and what we know from scripture and use that to interpret what we see in nature because um, because we are fallen, because nature is affected, all things around us are affected by sin and the fall, that the only place we can start with, the only place we can start that is sound, that is um, um, you know, infallible, is scripture. Um, so then, you know, as we've said before about men and women, you know, we see from Scripture that men and women are are equally made in the image of God. We see that we are redeemed through Christ, who is the Savior both for men and women. And so then, everything we do when we talk about men and women, um, even while nature might um, inform what we understand about what a man is or what a woman is, uh, our understanding of human nature needs to start from Scripture first instead of starting at nature. That was very well said. Uh, you know, I'll I'll tell you. Um, and you probably know this from homeschooling your kids, but I'm just always amazed the more I learn about um, about nature in general, mm-hmm. just God's wonder. Um, just so many, so many different things. You yes. just we've had these beautiful, colorful sunsets recently, and it just um, it's amazing mm-hmm. thinking about God and His creation. We did a lot of study on um, on animals because I have a son that's very obsessed, especially mm-hmm. reptiles and lizards. And so we we learned about the morning gecko, and it's not like good morning, but M O U R N I N G. And um, we actually had a, a couple of morning geckos. And so with morning geckos, the the males are pretty rare, but they're um, they're parthenogenic. And I never know if I say that right, but um, so the males are not necessary necessary for reproduction. So you have an animal where the males are rare, and the females can lay these eggs, and they don't need a male. And just think of of everything that God God does. Oh, so they're mourning because there there's no men. <laughs> that's why they're mourning. There's no males. I said them. Well, I don't know if that's actually why they're called that but that's what we read once but just amazing when you think about so much how everything works in our world so Rachel this one is really fits with um with your book Mm -hmm. so so I'm going to say my answer to the next question is go read Rachel's book (laughs) but how do we deal with uh Christians or conservatives who look down on women for working full time and for not having children, or for not having a lot of children, because we even have views out there, mm-hmm. uh, you know that I, I just there there's a view out there that there should be no preventing pregnancy um, using you know anything except for natural family planning sort of thing. Um, but I just learned that there's a view that you shouldn't in reform circles that you absolutely shouldn't even use natural family planning. So there's a lot of interesting um, dogmatic views out there. So how, how should we deal with, with that? And I have run into people, especially in homeschool circles that, Oh, you only have four children. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, it is a very delicate topic. It is a very sensitive topic when you get into 
uh, family size. Uh, we can't know everything about another person and their decisions or about their limitations. Um, you know, my my parents wanted. There's I have a brother. There's just the two of us. Uh, my parents wanted more children, but my mother was told that she would put herself and any future children at risk uh, if she'd had any more. And so my parents decided that they were good with two and uh, have over the, <laughs> the last uh, 40 years of my brother and I and our family have adopted um, unofficially many of, our fam- uh, many of our friends who didn't have um, good family situations and taken them under their, their wing and encouraged them and been mom and dad to them. And so, you know, there's, there's lots of ways that one can, can be a parent, um, whether or not you are blessed with biological children. So, you know, know, that being said, I think that this again is an area of Christian liberty and it's a place where each, um, each couple, if we're talking about having children, each woman, if we're talking about um, working outside the home and, and having a career, these are things that are up to families to decide or individuals to decide um, through their own relationship with, with the Lord and how God is calling them uh, to serve Him. And that's going to be different for different people, and it's going to look different for different people. And it's important that we not judge others based on the decisions that they make when we're talking about things that are not obviously sin. Uh, you know, we should not make sinful decisions, right, about our lives. It doesn't mean, you know, do whatever you want. But when you're talking about things that there are not prohibitions against and that there are not commandments for, um, there is no commandment for thou shalt have so many children. There are not uh, prohibitions of uh, you should never limit the size of your family. Uh, there are not prohibitions for uh, women can't work in uh, outside the home or uh, in careers. So in those areas, we have to be we have to use our judgment. We have to use um, the gifts that God has given us and the ways that He has given us to use them in the way He calls us to use them. And that may change in different seasons of life for for fe- for people and for families. When people look down on women for working full-time or not having children or not having enough children, um, you know, it's hard to be, you know, how can we be gracious and say it's not really your business, right? But um, there are gracious ways to tell people, you know, appreciate your concern, but um, I've... I have a different opinion on this, and I'm using the gifts that God's called me to use. Um, really, it, it comes down to understanding who we are as as believers, as men and women. And I believe that Scripture gives um, a, a picture, a clear picture of women being um, made to serve God in, in various aspects of their lives um, outside of uh, having a family. Uh, I think I would recommend, you know, of course, besides my book where I talk about these things more in depth, um, Worthy by uh, Elise uh, Fitzpatrick and Eric Shoemaker. They talk a lot about how after, in the New Testament, that the, the primary purpose of, uh, of women in, if you, if you will, having a children so that 
you know, because eventually the Messiah would be born, and so there was this this need within the church from the beginning for the women to have children so that there would one day be a Messiah. You know, that has been completed, and you see this picture in the New Testament of uh, women being um, honored and being recognized for other aspects of their lives and the things that they did uh, in the work of the church and supporting ministry. We see a different picture in the New Testament, and I think that that should be where where we start when we start looking at what what women should and can do uh, in their lives. Oh, that's a really great answer. And I, I know it's hard when people mm. look down on you or judgmental and, you know, I wish I could give some answer. Well, just tell them this mm-hmm. and it'll make it all better. Uh, when we wanted more children, you, you know, we thought we wanted like six kids. I, I love babies and children. And um, we were told that, very similar to what Rachel's parents were told, that um, having another baby could take my life and even when we said my husband said I'm not risking your life and even then we had people that said oh you're not trusting God and and that's such a silly silly thing to say that would be like um, I have a serious infection oh you're taking antibiotics you're not trusting God I mean it's just a, a silly thing God calls us to have wisdom mm-hmm. and you know each couple can decide together with wisdom what is what is best for their family. The next question kind of fits a little bit with everything that Rachel just said. Is it selfish to not have children, or is it the motive that determines that? Um, she says, I know many conservative Christians who call others, particularly, particularly my millennial generation, selfish if they don't have children out of convenience. But I do think it's more complex than that and and various factors determine it. And she talks about how she just graduated from college, she's working full time, you know. So I actually agree with her. I think there's various factors to consider. Yeah, I absolutely I agree. There's there's a lot going on and um you know it, when my husband and I got married he was in grad school and I was working full time and you know we didn't we had children fairly quickly, but we didn't have kids before my husband had graduated. And, you know, we we could at least attempt to have some kind of, uh, of income to take care of them. Um, where I wasn't also working full-time and trying to have babies. But um, everyone has to make those decisions for what, what's best for them and what's... Um, What's, I guess it's the wisdom to, to make decisions based on what God has given you and where you are at this stage of life. And um, I wanted to have children uh, while I was still young because I wasn't sure, um, based on family history, whether or not I would be able to have kids um, later in life. So that was a decision that went in, that was part of the decision making that went on for us. But it's very individual, and it's, um, again, it's a place that we should be uh, more gracious with others for their decisions. Yeah, amen. Amen to that. You know, there's there there are a lot of things, even things that come into our Q&A here, that are not black and white answers, but are a matter of wisdom. 
and liberty. So we, we got a question not long before we recorded and it had to do with our recent episode with the Freely Given podcast. And this is something I've heard before, though, although more often than not, people say it as kind of a gotcha. But the question has to do with uh, how, how is Lutheranism different than Federal Vision? And sometimes people will be like, well, you're okay with Lutherans. Why aren't you okay with Federal Vision? And there's, there's a lot of reason. I'll give one answer and then let Rachel talk about it too. But first of all, um, Lutherans believe strongly in, uh, in sola fide, faith alone. And we've seen, if you haven't listened to our episodes on Federal Vision, I can link those mm-hmm. in the episode notes too. But one of the things that happens within Federal Vision is they redefine things. And so when you redefine faith, and we've talked about this with Lordship Salvation too, you redefine faith, then you're redefining what is meant by sola fide, faith alone. And so Lutherans are monergistic. They, I mean, we have all seen the quotes from from Luther regarding faith alone. and they have a very strong doctrine of faith alone. But it's also a different framework than uh, than Reformed theology. So maybe you can talk about that in the differences. It's one thing that is very different because Lutherans, while well, you know, we, we had uh, Gretchen and Katie on last week, we can we can openly say, you know, we disagree on these issues, right? We disagree on how to view baptism. We disagree on, on issues about the Lord's Supper and about um, even about perseverance of the saints and what that means. Uh, one of the big differences with federal visionists is that they are attempting to be Presbyterian and Reformed and hold to these federal vision views. Um which is not the same thing as, you know, I, I can recognize that you as a Lutheran have a different view on some things than I have. Um, the, the Lutherans are not saying that they're Presbyterians and saying that they agree the same thing I do uh, or that we teach in our churches. R. Scott Clark has some articles on uh, Lutheranism. Mm-hmm. And um, on one of those articles, somebody had kind of asked a similar question. And I thought what he said... Um, was helpful. He, he said, I don't mean to say at all that confessional Lutherans equal federal vision, but there's a strong similarity in their view of baptism. In the federal vision, baptism is said to be so objective that it is ex opera operato, I'm not sure if I'm saying that mm-hmm. right, um, creates a temporary conditional election and union with Christ and justification. Um, so that faith is really useless. In the Federal Vision Scheme, we are told that we must cooperate with the grace given in baptism in order to retain it. So that's very, that describing Federal Vision right there is very different than Lutheranism. They they don't say, okay, you're baptized now, you got to cooperate with the grace in order to maintain mm-hmm. it. So, and then um, Federal Vision have these conditional benefits um, that that come in, in baptism. So, you know, you, you get these things if you do your part. You know, we've talked about with Federal Vision that they have an emphasis on faithfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, Got to do your part in order to maintain this thing. Yep. In by grace, stay in by works. Yes. 
And I know that I'm going to say because this has come up several several times when Federal Vision comes up and Doug Wilson comes up, people point to uh, a conversation that happened about a year ago. It's on YouTube between James White and Doug Wilson. It was kind of an attempted exoneration of Doug Wilson. And he says, oh, I believe in faith alone. Um, but again, this is why it's important to really understand what's being said, because he hasn't said, I no longer believe all these things that I wrote previously. He's never said that. He said he continues to believe mm-hmm. what he's always believed. Um, but they redefine faith. And and within a reformed framework, starting out with, you know, another thing he says in that conversation, pretty sure it's in that conversation, he says, oh, I don't deny the covenant of works, but I call it something different, and I think it was gracious. And so, within Reformed theology, if you start out, and so he's essentially denying the covenant of works by calling it a gracious covenant, and then from there on, you have a completely different system altogether. So, oh, and there's even also, too, with their denial of law and gospel, there's even some quotes that have been going around recently. When you when you say, every, he says, everything is law, everything is gospel. So now when works, commands, um, become gospel, so you're saying the good news is that you get to obey to acquire something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very different than historic Reformed theology and our, um, our doctrine of justification by faith alone. All right, well, thank you for joining us. Um, I... We're going to be planning soon what's going to come up. So, I, uh, so if you have any topics that you'd like us to do, definitely send them in. And we will see you next week.